in the beginning, no matter what the religious conception, there's always that do, the do's and don'ts are there. None of us like the do's and don'ts. At least I don't. <laughs> and Krishna speaks about that in the Bhagavad Gita, that uh, there has to be a natural tendency to to engage in a loving way with the on the spiritual platform. That unless we come to that stage of spontaneity in loving on the transcendental plane, we'll still find our enjoyment here in the sensual plane. And in the sensual plane, those enjoyments simply become misery because this is the plane of, of give and take, the plane of exchanging some currency for what we get whether it be uh, currency that's our hard-earned cash at the store to sustain ourselves or to buy those trinkets that we think will make us happy in life. Currency is there in, in every exchange, not just money, but currency in relationships, uh, uh, currency with the environment. I mean, in every, in every realm we are exchanging and that exchange is commonly referred to as karma. As we give, so we will get. But on the transcendental plane, as the author has pointed out there very nicely, there will be an awakening of inner, an inner sense of love. And that loving propensity will overpower all that has come before it in preparing the groundwork for rising to purified goodness. In the material world, there's three modes of nature. Uh, and they're mixed together. There's ignorance, there's passion, and there's goodness. And, of course, to, to come to a higher standard of spiritual realization, we first of all have to give up those lower planes. We have to walk away from the darkness into the light. Uh, there's a Vedic aphorism that, that mentions this. Uh, that uh, we, tamasa, the darkness has to be walked, walked away from. We have to go towards the light. What does that mean? It means that we have to walk away from passion and ignorance and move towards goodness and in the mode of goodness, we can start to see, see things in proper perspective. That seeing is not necessarily spiritual vision, but it gives us the ability to see things in proper perspective and understand our situation in the material world. In coming to that, if we are blessed by the association of a great sadhu, of a spiritual master, of Krishna's devotees, of great scriptures like Bhagavad Gita that, as it is, are put forward by people that have actually realized the content. If we have that good fortune, then we can start to grasp what it means to rise to the platform of Sudasattva, purified goodness, goodness that is not contaminated with the currency of material involvement. We can begin to grasp the concept of that higher plane. And the author here is talking that as you progress in self-realization, under good guidance, eventually all that difficulty, because there is difficulty, if you want to advance in spiritual life, some, some saint can come along and maybe touch you on the head or something like that, but generally speaking, we have to work for it. And that working is just what? It's not really going to give us love, it's going to show that we want love to those who can bless us. It's not like we are, our hard works in devotional service are going to give us devotional service. 
Bhakti is causeless. But our hard works do what? What happens when the spiritual master sees that we're trying to advance spiritually? What does that invoke? Well, this month, we're chanting daily Dhammadharastika. What is, what's the message there? We discussed this a couple weeks ago. What happened? Mother Yasoda was so attached to, to having Krishna in her grasp, to not letting him run off, that what happened? She worked to acquire him, to bind him up, to bind him, but it was not possible. How can any of us bind the Supreme? Can't do it. If his belly can, contains all the universes, if he's that gigantic, if that's God, how are you, what, there's no rope you're ever going to find. You can tie all the ropes in the house together, all the ropes in the village. You could tie all the ropes in the world together, in the universe, in all the universes. Still, none of those ropes would ever be long enough. But she was endeavoring, please, please, let me, let me, I'm concerned, you know, I want, I want to, that my son grows up properly, that he's well disciplined. And this concern was love, and she was working so hard, the perspiration is coming. And what happened? Krishna what? He became merciful. And that mercy was the other finger that covered Krishna's unlimitedness, his unlimited potencies, and he could be bound. Why? Out of mercy. Similarly, the spiritual master is giving us, he's testing us. You do this, you do that. Sometimes he, there, there seems to be maybe, maybe there's some favoritism. Oh, he's doing this and I'm sitting here and not getting, I'm not even recognized for my service. He's always testing. He's making sure. And we're sweating. Did I do that right? <laughs> Have I displeased the spiritual master? Am I pleasing him? Did he reject me because, because of this or because of that? Did he choose this person in front of me because of this? But really, sometimes the favor is shown to the person that apparently isn't getting this favor. It's hard to understand, but the spiritual master has to be accepted as the external manifestation of Krishna. And we accept like that. And we sweat to do it right, don't we? But what gets the job done? The mercy. The mercy comes when the sincerity is perceived. Then there's mercy. And when that mercy comes, it's a flood. It's a flood of spiritual awareness. We become enlightened. And all that we did for so many years or lifetimes to advance spiritually, it's like an amazing thing that it's an ocean of unlimited transcendental joy that repays us unlimitedly for an infinitesimal bit of sweat when we come to that level of spiritual realization. It's a flood. And when that flood of true spiritual awareness comes, all the sweat, all the rules and regulations, all the hard work, all the difficulties that seemed insurmountable are easily overcome. And to tell you the truth, people, the, the devotees that make it to that platform, they can throw all the rules and regulations out the window, no matter what their religious tradition is. But they never do. They always want to give us good example. 
So although they're not bound anymore because they're completely free from the ropes of material nature, the modes of goodness, passion, and ignorance have completely fallen away. Although that's the case, still, you'll never find a flaw in their character. Unless you're covered with flaws. And for those that are covered in flaws, they can find a flaw in anybody's character, even Krishna. So, Bhagavad Gita. So, we're talking about here in the sixth chapter, Astanga Yoga. Krishna is saying, well, there's, there's a process of Astanga Yoga. There's yoga practices which can help rein the mind in. And he's pointing these out to Arjuna. He's not really expecting Arjuna to become a yogi, is he? Is that his purpose? I think he's trying to tell him how hard it would be if he wanted to do it this way. Good point. Very new. Very good. Good insight. So for the yogi, the yogi, the practice is, is difficult. It's certainly rewarding. And what are the rewards? The rewards are complete mastery over the mind and senses. And the benedictions from those that mastery is referred to and revealed as what? Cities. cities. What can we do with cities? There's eight primary cities. Come smaller than the smallest. Smaller than the smallest. Greater than the greatest. Very large. Acquiring whatever you want. Controlling other people's minds. All the wizardry that we, we see put forth uh, by the great writers of, of movie scripts or Harry Potter uh, conjured up with his little wand. I mean, all these things we look at as, as great achievements are simply being able to control the material energy as you desire rather than the material energy controlling you. But for what? My spiritual master, Bhaktivedanta Swami, says in one of his purports, basically, they were working to become a perfect yogi. And then they realized that the majority of all the yogic cities were, for the most part, being accomplished by the modern scientists. They had great microscopes and they could see smaller and see become smaller than the smallest to see even the, no, the neutrons and the protons going around that were the, the building blocks of, of the material energy and uh, they had great telescopes and they could look out and they could see the expanse of the whole universe with these telescopes and they had their planes they could fly in the sky they could try to go to other planets at their own whim. They even thought they went to the moon. Maybe they went to some moon. We're not going to get into that. You know, We accept the Vedic version of the universe. The material scientists, from their Petri dish perspective, they may see it a little different. For us, we take a little different perspective. These are details. We should never let the details of the Vedas, especially when the mind has some difficulty grasping some of the concepts that are put forth, uh, we should never let that interfere with our spiritual progress. Always take shelter of, of good. You're, of course, you are going to be confronted and that's, that's truly the nature of the spiritual master, is it not? He's there to confront what we accept as valuable wisdom. He's going to confront us. Oh, is this really, really you're so, so hung up on, on this or that that you're willing to forsake your whole spiritual advancement in life for it? for some conception, that test may be there. I was just reading about a test this morning that 
Sukadeva Swami uh, placed before Parikshit Maharaj. Now we all know Srimad Bhagavatam, the, the, the context is there that Parikshit has seven days and the plug is going to be pulled. I thought it was 14 days. A week. It's just one week? Mm-hmm. So, somehow or other, not somehow or other, when we are determined to make spiritual advancement, Krishna manifests externally as a bona fide spiritual master. He came in contact with Sukadeva Goswami. So in the at the in the fifth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, at the end of the fifth canto, there's a description practically the whole fifth canto deals with how the material world is, from the highest planet to the lowest planet, and what the distances between the planets are, what's the true length and breadth of the universe. Uh, it's really big. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's quite amazing. But at the very end of that fifth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, what's, what's discussed there? At the end of the fifth canto is the sinful reactions that can come to a greatly, to someone that has no sense of common decency. And they're not willing to accept any good direction. So there are hellish planets. And in these hellish planets, no matter what the religion of the world is, they all have some concept of what is hell. Well, the Bhagavatam's concept, I, yeah, I'm not going to really get into some of the things if you want to study that. It's quite interesting. So, at the, after hearing all of these descriptions of these hellish planets and how the soul can be forced to suffer if they're completely godless and they just have no sense of right and wrong. They don't care In order to enjoy in this world, they will exploit anyone else to the maximum. They'll steal other people's wives. They'll they'll abuse women and children. They'll abuse the environment. They'll abuse the lower living entities who look to them for shelter. They will even abuse guests when a guest comes to their home. So... The fifth canto at the end, it's explained what happens to people that have these rotten mentalities. They have to have their, their, there has to be a little adjustment in the consciousness before they're allowed to come back to the human form of life. So there are arrangements to adjust their consciousness. So at the beginning of the sixth canto, Parikshit Maharaj, after hearing all these descriptions, And he's about to die. He's not thinking he's going to hell. He knows he's been blessed with good good sangha. He was born in a good family. His family was Krishna's personal associates when Krishna manifested his pastime on earth. He wasn't worried for himself, but naturally when he heard of these hellish conditions, the living entity could be forced into by neglectfulness and wanton exploitation, he felt some compassion. So he asked Sukadeva Goswami at the end of that canto, at the beginning of the next canto, beginning of the sixth canto, which is a lead-in to the story of Ajamil. And wow, what mercy is there in the story of Ajamil. But he questioned Sukadeva, well, what what can the living entity do to avoid these hellish conditions? And the first response that Sukadeva Goswami said is he can perform some pious activity. What do we call that? Well, say, say how many Hail Marys and uh, so many uh, acts of... Or in this... In so many traditions... There is atonement, prias chitta. So he said, well, they can perform some prias chitta, and if they do that before the end of their life, they won't have to go to hell. They won't have to suffer those hells. 
here we are speaking in the, of the Srimad Bhagavatam, speaking of the highest level of theistic understanding, and all of a sudden, Sukadev Goswami reverts to atonement on the material plane? He was testing Maharaj Parikshit. Have you been hearing at all what we've been discussing up to this point? Let me see what happens when I lay this one on you. To avoid hell, just do some atonement. Say ten, say ten Hail Marys and it will all go away. Oh, Parikshit Maharaj had heard properly and he was not at all satisfied with that response. Well, what's that going to do? They can still perform the... <laughs> Basically, he said simply, he said this, doesn't make any sense to me what you're saying. Sounds to me like when the, when the elephant goes into the river to take its bath. Goes into the river, washes himself off, and what's the first thing he does when he jumps out of the river? He gets some dirt and snorts it all over his body again. He said... That doesn't sound right to me. This was the, you've given me a given me a, a an explanation that doesn't make any spiritual sense. Why you would give me such an explanation? So Sukadev Goswami was very pleased. Ah, you've been hearing. Make sure you always have some pertinent question for the spiritual master. Very important. Hmm. I just noticed the other day you had some darshan with uh, Swami Tripurari. What's the first thing he said? So you have some question? Right? You have some question? I'm, I'm here. I'm here to solve the problems of the human form of life. I'm here to give you the highest. You have some question? Or do you know it all? What am I here for? You've come to me. You're here sitting. I'm taking my time. Well, what's the question? Very important. We always need to be in the proper frame of mind when we're in the presence of the great sadhus, the spiritual master. We need questions. We all have questions about life. Should never pose her. Well, you know it all. What you've, you know, you've told us all. I've told you all. Krishna is unlimited, and you think I've given that all to you? No. The conversation between this particular portion of Srimad Bhagavatam, the conversation between Parikshit Maharaj and Sukadev Goswami, came to the point that uh, Parikshit. Sukadev Goswami went on to tell Maharaj Parikshit, said, well, knowledge is helpful. Acquiring knowledge is good. So if you have knowledge, then there's a chance you won't perform some dumb, exploitive, self-serving act again because you know what is heaven, what is hell, what is right, what is wrong. You're a little bit above the mode of ignorance. You're not like the elephant who simply says his Hail Marys and then goes back and throws on the sins of life. It's just give and take. The karma is still there. What, what good is it? So you've done an atonement and the atonement has eliminated. Yes, the policeman's come up. He's turned on his siren. He's come up behind you and pulled you over. And what's the first thing? Please, mercy. If you give me a ticket, my insurance is going to go up. My husband is going to kill me. I mean, I didn't mean to. I'm not drunk. I can, you know, whatever the excuse is there, we beg, please, don't. I don't want to suffer. All right. I'll let you off this time. Some atonement is there. But, if the next day you're caught in the same speed trap, yeah, that's not going to work. That's material nature. The speed traps of material nature are there. Everywhere, huh? We're always caught. We can only get away with it for so long. 
So atonement is not the true solution, is it? Begging for forgiveness or paying the ticket. Sometimes we can't get get off. You got off once down the road, right? For no reason whatsoever. I didn't even ask. (laughs) So, sometimes we get off, sometimes we have to pay the ticket, sometimes we go to hell. So, if once we start to acquire knowledge, that's better. But still, Maharaj Pariksit wasn't content with that. Then Sukadev said, yes, this is good. He's really hearing. He said, the only true solution, you've got to tear it out by the roots. You have to burn those desires for exploitation out of the heart. And that can only be accomplished when we receive the mercy that is coming down. We can only rip off our ropes when we can bind up Krishna in our heart. We can only bind up Krishna when he's willing to be bound. And Krishna is only willing to be bound when? When he, dis- when he sees our sincerity and he gives us some mercy. That mercy comes directly from Krishna through the bona fide spiritual master. Sometimes Krishna will give it directly. We can also help ourselves along by good association, by following some some little regulation, keep the mind pure, not let it get hung up in that exploitive mentality again and again. The end of the conversation is there, and, and, the, and the significance was put forward by Sukadev. Yes, the true solution is pure devotional service, because pure, pure devotional service burns up those desires. Now, we understand these desires as karma. Now, parabdha karma means it's manifest. It's important we understand this term, parabdha karma. And then we have the seedling, bija karma. So, parabdha karma, look around you. Look at your body. Look at the body of my dog. Look, what you are, where you are now, the mentality you have, the body you have, the abilities you have, the opulence you have, or lack thereof, especially in this economy, uh, all these things are your current manifestation of, that have come about due to your prior activities. That's called parabdha karma. It is manifest karma. And there are also within our heart unlimited seeds of desire. Unlimited seeds of material desire. And what do they lead to? The next one of these. This time I'm a man, next time a woman, this time a human being, next time a dog, this time a human being, maybe a demigod, maybe from a demigod to a human being, maybe from a a little microbe, we go up gradually, step by step, through so many species of life, we come to the human form of life. Has nothing to do with us. Has nothing to do with our true being, all these bodies, all this parabdha karma, all this bija karma that hasn't yet been manifest. And there's only one way is to burn it out at the root. And the only thing that really does that is pure yoga. Yogi Namapesaravesam. And of all yogis, he who abides in me. That's at the end of this. What is that verse? What's Krishna say? Yogi Namapesaravesam matgate nattaratmana shradavan bhajate yomam Same yukta tamomata. And of all yogis, all the different kinds of, there's karma yogas. Didn't we talk last chapter about karma yoga? What's he do? He works without an attachment. He follows all the rules and regulations of the scripture without attachment. Niskarma. 
He doesn't want to go to the higher planets. He doesn't want to enjoy the fruits. Yogi namapi sarve sam matgate nantaratmana shradavan bhajate yomam same yukta tamo mataha. And of all yogis, the one with great faith who always abides in me thinks of me within himself and renders transcendental loving service to me. He is the most intimately united with me in yoga and is the highest of all. That is my opinion. Now, we may have our opinion. We may think karma yoga is all that, that's really important. Let me follow all the rules and regulations of karma yoga as put forth in all the various scriptures so that I can go to heaven. I can live for a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand years in one body and have what? All the mystic cities throughout my life. It's explained that the life in the heavenly planets is very unique. Everybody on this plane of material existence enjoys primarily the, the, the real quintessential of all enjoyment is sex life. Imagine in the heavenly planet, they have grand sex life. No children. Don't have to use any contraception. They go throughout their life enjoying their sex life in the most heavenly gardens and atmospheres. And then at the right before someone in the female form is to leave. They live for hundreds of thousands of years. Then they'll have their offspring. No old age, no disease, but there's death. Going to have to give up that body eventually. That piety will wear off. The bank account will be emptied from all that enjoyment in the heavenly atmosphere. Is that like, like um, in Satya Yuga, people, you know, when we were in our most, you know, godly state that we could we reproduce simply by thought or by desire mm-hmm. if you wanted to. So is that similar on that? Not really. Actually the, the interesting thing is the Bhagavad explains to us that Satya Yuga is, a, is is basically a plane of consciousness so high that everybody's constantly in meditation. They're not really engaged. Hmm. But Treta Yuga on, on the earthly plane is equivalent to life on the heavenly planets. Okay. So the next stage, where they begin to perform sacrifices, they enjoy so much even on the earthly plane mm-hmm. that it's, it's similar to life in heaven. But those, those heavenly planets, those higher planets, they also go through cycles, right? They go through cycles, yugas? Not like, not like on the earthly plane, no. Mm-mm. You go through them on the lower planets? Right here. <laughs> right here, okay. It's only on the earthly plane, which is the true plane of karma. Mm-hmm. Then you go below karma, it's called subterranean heavenly planets. Mm-hmm. Why are they called heavenly? Because they know they they also enjoy, they may enjoy more than the than the uh, demigods. They have no conception of the Supreme Lord. Mm-hmm. Imagine living in a society of man. Well, I guess we can see some of that on this planet. No, not even a conception of God. This is my place. So much do I have today. So much will I have tomorrow. Everything is working under my direction. That's really mode of ignorance. Although you can see you didn't make anything here, you have the you have the ignorant conception <laughs> that you're in control. Yeah, it's interesting. Bhagavad explains it's actually Treta Yuga, which is similar to, to the heavenly planets. Okay. So, the, well, there's no possibility of advancement then on those subterranean heavenly planets. How does one advance? Well, everybody, the modes of nature, what's Krishna explained in Bhagavad Gita? That these modes of goodness, passion, none of them are, are, are there 100%. Everybody's given an opportunity to, to their karma, just as their piety wears off, their impiety also will wear off in time and they will be able to come back to this plane. 
This is where the real work's done. The demigods, they beg to be born on this earthly plane. When they see Krishna's here manifesting his pastimes, they beg, wow, if I could just... Well, sometimes they just come down. In fact, we find at the beginning of the 10th canto, what? Krishna says, he tells all the demigods, you come down to this plane. That's why they're always celebrating what happens here. Yeah. So they take birth just to participate in Krishna's pastimes. This verse is so important. Yogi Namapi Sarvesam. All these different yogas. Karma yoga. Jnana yoga. In this chapter, Astangi yoga is there. All meant to what? To purify the living entity. To set his consciousness straight. But of all these different yogis, of all these different yoga practices, what's Krishna say? Just remember me. If you can just remember me, that's enough. You don't have to follow all the regulations of karma yoga. You don't have to follow all the book, all the all the details of the sacrificial sacrificial performances. Just surrender to me. Sarva dharmam parichajya, mami kam sararam antam sarva papedyo moksa yashami machuj. The whole conclusion of Bhagavad Gita is the same, is it not? Abandon all variety of religion. What are religions? Different ways of performing activities that fall into the category of dharma, religion. Some people are karmi dharmas, right? They follow all the rules. They treat their neighbors as themselves. They So many things and so many religious scriptures are there. Then we come to the platform of Gyan. Gyanis. The Gyanis, what do they do? They study the nature of the universe. They try to discriminate between what's happening in the material world. They want to know what are the elements. What is spirit? What is matter? What is the living entity? They want to obtain knowledge of Sambandha, the inner relationship of things. Sambandha. That knowledge of how things work in the material world. And that knowledge helps a lot. When we know what's going on, you're really a lot... The inclination to do the wrong thing is a lot less when you know the consequences of your actions. When you know how to elevate yourself to the higher plane, when you know how to perform yoga to get the mystic cities, that really... If you want to turn iron into gold, you can do it. Simply control your mind. That's how strong these yogis become. They can acquire anything, imagine, in the material world. They can go anywhere in the material world. Except one thing they can't get away from. Krishna explains that in Bhagavad Gita. Abrahma, Bhuvana, Loka. From the highest planet, Brahma Loka. Abrahma, Bhuvana, Loka. From that Loka where we're talking supreme perfection, so much yogic power, so much mystic opulence, you can manifest a universe. That's Brahma's loka. Abrahma Bhuvana Loka. From that highest plane all the way down to the lowest, what's the one thing no living entity can avoid? Yeah. All places of misery, according to Krishna. Why? There's death. Even Brahma dies. He lives a long, 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 long. I could say that a long time. <laughs> I could say it, and we still couldn't conceive of how long his life is. And what's Krishna's opinion when it comes to that? From the highest planet to the lowest, forget him. No happiness there. So, you have all the mystic opulence. So, you can create your own universe. So, so what? So buttons. 
It's never going to make you happy. And what's Krishna saying here at the end of this chapter? This is my opinion. You may have your opinion of what yoga is all about. Your opinion may be karma yoga is the best. Your opinion may be jnana yoga is the best. Your opinion may be astanga yoga is the best, which I've been discussing in this. You know, this astanga yoga, this is some real stuff happening here because imagine you're really talking about having the control within yourself. The karma yogi, he's, he's going out. He's having to follow the regulations of scripture, the proper formula of sacrifices, the proper way to atone for sinful activities he may have performed. He's dependent on others, is he not? Because there's a sacrifice. We're making a sacrifice to what? To some higher authority. But when we talk at the Astangi Yogi, he becomes his own authority. He goes within, and by controlling his mind and senses, he can determine his own destiny. Pretty amazing stuff. Krishna's opinion? Yeah, it's nice, but I've told you about it here. We've discussed it in this chapter. But... Really, the devotee is worlds ahead of the Astanga Yogi. Now, when we look at this presentation of the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, it is important to understand the unique flavor that's been given to this chapter by the heart of Krishna's pure devotee. Krishna's pure devotee sees everything and presents specifically when he's presenting for the Western world for the first time a true Bhagavad Gita, everything painted with the brush of bhakti. Bhaktivedanta Swami's Bhagavad Gita as it is, no matter if the sloka, the verse being spoken by Krishna, is about some specific detail of yogic practice, astanga yoga, how does Bhaktivedanta put that forth to us? Completely covered over with the eyes of a pure devotee. It's really interesting. It's fun to see the way Prabhupada does that, isn't it? He says, he, the way he translates it, every verse. A transcendentalist should always engage his body, mind, and self. This is text 10. In relationships with the Supreme. He should live alone in a secluded place and should always carefully control his mind. He should be free from desires and feelings of possessiveness. To practice yoga, one should go to a secluded place and should lay kusa grass on the ground and then cover it with a deer skin and a soft cloth. You guys ready for that? Huh? Go out to the woods, get some kusa grass, which has to be pointed in the right direction, put down a soft cloth, throw, off all your, throw away all your clothes, find a deer skin, sit there, meditate. The seat can't be too high or too low. has to be just right. can't be too hot or too cold. has to be just right. And should be situated in a sacred place. So you, have to, you have to make sure you're in the right environment. The yogi should then sit on it very firmly and practice yoga to purify the heart by controlling the mind senses and activities and fixing the mind on one point. Okay, you guys ready for this? One should hold one's body, neck and head erect in a straight line and stare steadily at the tip of the nose. Thus, with an unagitated, subdued mind, devoid of fear, completely free from sex life, one should meditate upon me within the heart and make me the ultimate goal of life. Thus, practicing constant control of the body, mind, and activities, the mystic transcendentalist, his mind regulated 
attains to the kingdom of God or the abode of Krishna by succession of material existence. There is no possibility of one's becoming a yogi, O Arjuna, if one eats too much or eats too little, sleeps too much or does not sleep enough. He who is regulated in his habits of eating, sleeping, recreation, and work can mitigate all material pains by practicing the yoga system. Interesting here, huh? Krishna is not seeing the yogi as doing nothing. Yogi still has to do stuff to keep the body going. Krishna is not seeing a yogi as not sleeping. Sure, sleeping a little is good, but still got to sleep some. Consciousness has to rest. Body has to be fed. Body needs a little rec. You have to get up and move around a little bit. A little rec recreation. But you have to do all these things in a controlled manner. Don't eat too much. You don't sleep too much. You don't over-engage in any activity. So even though we may not be able to practice fully the aspects of yoga, astanga yoga, that are virtually impossible for us in this age, like... Virtually. Virtually? Not virtually. Just impossible. Well, unless I've seen some yogis. I have some people that are practicing Astanga <laughs> Yoga. Oh, you don't wear your deer skin tonight. Oh, wow. I like it at home. Yeah. <laughs> On my perfect seat. On your perfect seat with all your grass pointed in the right direction. And it's a sacred place, is it not? Yes. You couldn't bring that sacred place here. No. So, but even in this chapter, there's so much there. The devotee, he also doesn't eat too much or eat too little. But he always eats prasadam. Mm -hmm. He doesn't sleep too much or too little. But he regulates his sleep. Why? Well, the Goswamis, the direct disciples of Lord Chaitanya, were so advanced. They were so enthused with spiritual ecstasy at every moment. Their hearts were just pouring out with, you know, experiencing Krishna's love. They didn't want to sleep. I don't want to give this up for a dream. This reality is the best thing I've ever had. Why would I give it up? They didn't want to stop what they were doing in devotional service. Their, their full life of giving, they never wanted to give that away for more than just enough to keep the body alive taking a teeny bit of time. These. That's why Krishna says at the end of this chapter, yogi nam apisarve sam. These are real yogis. They're totally controlled by love. Mm. As a lamp in a windless place does not waver, so the transcendentalist whose mind is controlled remains always steady in his meditation on the transcendental self. In the stage of perfection called trance or samadhi, one's mind is completely restrained from material mental activities by practice of yoga. This perfection is characterized by one's ability to see the self by the pure mind and to relish and rejoice in the self. In that joyous state, one is situated in boundless transcendental happiness. This is better than the cinema show. This is better than all your boys and girlfriends. This is better than all the money and the fast cars, the fancy outfits that we wear, the swimming pools we like to own. This is all better than all the vacations that we've ever wanted to take. This is called boundless transcendental happiness. Realized through what? Transcendental senses. What's the difference between our senses and transcendental senses? 
Yeah, they're unlimited. They can they can they can take in as much spiritual joy that at this point that flood of spiritual emotion would make us the examples are there, isn't it? When we look at those sattvika bhavas, when we look at those, what? The hairs are standing on end, becoming stunned. Tears are flowing constantly from the eyes. Sometimes when we, are, we still have a material body, these waves of spiritual emotion interact with the elements within the body, the water, the air, and they produce these such a an amazing effect that we lose all control. There's no physics. So we see. Well, we don't see very much. But we can read about. And sometimes we can see in the in the really advanced devotees they're overcome with spiritual emotion. Or we they give us you know, they we 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 experience some little sliver, some little shining, we see, oh, wow. We can perceive something there. But, rolling on the ground, perspiration, even Lord Chaitanya, he was so overtaken with spiritual emotion, he would, instead of sweat, blood would come from his pores. We shouldn't think that's a bad thing. Not in that case. But it's hard for it's hard impossible for us to comprehend. Let me finish this verse and then we'll start. Transcendental senses, not what we're seeing, not the ears we're hearing with, or the nose, or the eyes, or the taste, the feel that we have. This is all within the modes of material nature. It's limited, it's temporary. But as we purify ourselves, then our true senses will begin to manifest. Established thus, one never departs from the truth. And upon gaining this, he thinks there is no greater gain. Being situated in such a position, one is never shaken, even in the midst of the greatest difficulty. What's the greatest difficulty? You got it. Probably pretty hard, huh? Controlling the mind. Well, that's hard too, but when death comes... That's really hard. So, even in the midst of the greatest difficulty, being situated in such a position, he's not shaken, not disturbed, even with death, even when the body has to, even when the body dies on us. That's what really happens. We don't die, but the body, it just can't go on. Just, it's had it. This indeed is actual freedom from all miseries arising from material contact. So we'll spend one more week on this chapter. Any questions? We'll discuss during Prashadam. Thank you so much for coming, listening to me. It's my good fortune to have you here. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.